Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to today's edition of Getting In a College Coach Conversation. We are coming to you here in early March, at least where I am. It's going to be uh, the, the second week of March by the time you all are hearing this. Uh, and just over the weekend, I started to get some news from my students that they were admitted to the University of California, Santa Cruz. Three of them let me know that they had the opportunity this year to become banana slugs, which is fantastic. But it's also a signal to us that the regular decision season is upon us uh, right here in the early part of March. And so joining me to talk a little bit about what you all can expect from decisions, how to prepare for them is one of my favorite colleagues, Christine Kenyon, don't tell anybody else I said that. I don't know if anybody listens to the show, but hi, Christine. Welcome to the show. Hi, Ian. Thank you for having me back. I'm so glad to have you. And we're here talking about what, what exactly this whole thing amounts to, right? I mean, students have gone through the process of putting in their applications. They've settled on their school lists. Uh, they've got teacher letters of recommendation. All this stuff has happened. And now they're kind of waiting. And here come the decisions. Um, the first thing I want to ask you, because I think it, it seems obvious, but it isn't always. How do students find out <laughs> whether they've gotten into a school or not? It's a good question because it has changed since yeah. when perhaps you or I applied to college. Um, typically, students will be notified of their admission decision via the online portal system that most colleges make students set up after yeah. students submits an application. And so usually a student will receive an email to the email address that they use when they submitted the application that says, hey, log back into your portal. Your decision is ready. Colleges yeah. sometimes will also tweet out or post on social media um, the day and time at which they're going to release their decisions online. And then students can log in and see um, a PDF version of their admission letter. And um, for some schools, if they'll follow up with stuff in the mail, other schools won't. And it's all digital and very green. And make sure you remember what your portal password is. Yeah. And, and check that spam folder in your email box. I've had a lot of students that are like, I haven't heard from this school yet. And all my friends have heard. You got to dig into your junk mail. And you're going to find it in there, and then you're going to want to log into that portal. Um, is there any reason for students to log into their portal in advance of when they think the decision might come? Might they might they get any useful information from that platform? I think it's always helpful to check in on the portal. You know, the reason that portals exist is to make sure that students are. Um, that, that all of the students' information has arrived to the university because the universities will post there, hey, we're missing your mid-year grades, we really need to see those, or, you know, we're missing X, Y, or Z. Um, I don't think logging in early will have you beat the system and get your admission decision any earlier, um, but I do think it is always helpful to check in and just make sure that, you know, you know what's happening, what's coming down the pipeline, and um, double check that the college has everything they need. Um, some universities also kind of ask students to fill out additional information once um, they apply within that portal. So it's just always a good practice to check in um, with that portal every once in a while to make sure you're not missing anything. Yeah, I, I remember one of our colleagues, uh, I think Abigail, telling us she was on a meeting with a student and they were checking in the portal to just make sure that everything had arrived. And the student was like, 
oh my God, I got in. <laughs> Just like, surprise, you're, you're in there. So um, yeah, sometimes decisions are already waiting for you, but it's a good idea to get in there check it out. Make sure you've got the password right. Maybe make sure all the information has been submitted on time. You've got green check marks next to everything. And then it's time to, I would say, prepare yourself mentally and emotionally. Um, is there any advice that you have for students as they are entering this phase of the process? They haven't yet heard back from schools, but it's right around the corner. How can they think about getting themselves in the right kind of headspace? And I mean, is that different advice for every student depending on, on the student? Yeah, it can be different advice. And I think think the reason that is, is because everybody processes information in a different way. There's yeah. some students who want a lot of emotional support, which transfers to having a lot of family members around them as they open the um, college admission letter. This is a really exciting time for them and they want people to celebrate with them if they get in and they want people to console them if um, they didn't get in. And this is a place that they particularly hoped to do so. Um, yeah. Other students process information better alone. You know, they, they kind of want to be in their own space. They're, you know, at home or in their car, just someplace where nobody else can see them so that they can just like read the information and then decide how they feel and how they want to react. So know that regardless of what you might be seeing on social media, because some people, this is like my worst nightmare. There's some people like tape their reactions to their yeah. admissions. Yeah. And that's just, I was just thinking that. Me. No. Um, regardless of what your parents are saying or your guardian or, you know, your friends who are like, let's all open it at the same time. A lot of admission decisions post during school hours. I would not recommend opening it up on your phone in the middle of class or in the hallway. It's just, you've worked so hard the four years of high school. You've put so much time and energy and effort into this application. Give yourself the grace to be in a space that allows you to process whatever the outcome may be in whatever way you're, you end up expressing that, you know? So yeah. um, I just say, be thoughtful about where you want to be with who, if anybody, um, when you open up that admission decision. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's worth waiting, I think, to get into that right headspace. And I think that, you know, even if you get into a school that you're really excited by um, in the middle of the school day, that could also cause disruption for your friends if they applied to the same schools and they didn't get in. Now you're dealing with that sort of conflict of emotion in that space. And you're not giving them the opportunity to process their own decisions in the ways that might work for them. So I actually, I, I think universally, there should just be a ban on checking admission decisions while you're at school. Um, unless, you know, you have a guidance counselor going in and you're really close with them and you want to talk about it. I also think there should be a ban on parents opening admission decisions without the students present. And you didn't allude to that at all, but as soon as you said family, I was like, there are some overzealous fathers and mothers out there that might say, oh, I want to know if he got in, he's, he's coming home from school later, but I've got his application portal password uh, and I'm, I'm going to check because I know the decision's coming out today. Uh, we need to wait on that kind yes. of thing, right? For a few um, reasons, I think. Number one, <laughs> um, well, not number one, but the admission decision letter might disappear after. And I've seen that happen for some students. Like they see the decision letter, they click through or like it's there and then it disappears. So if a parent does that or a guardian does that and the student logs in and they can't see the actual letter, ooh, that's going to be a tough conversation. That's and rough. the other reason is a part of life is dealing with the ups and downs that come with rejection, right? And so I think part of what will prepare students for the ups and downs of college, as great as it is, as challenging as it is at times, um, 
is being able to kind of take this first step of like on their own accepting whatever happens and processing it in their way. Yeah. It's, um, it's not a, I mean, for me, I hated it. Like it was a really bad experience for me overall because I just got denied at a lot of places. That's because I didn't have any real good advice, but it really, yeah, kind of stung for sure. In, in a way that other experiences to that point had not. Um, I mean, you know, there are also opportunities for people to celebrate in the end. It is a transition, right? It's, it's an opportunity towards that next step it is not the culmination of things. It's, it's the next opportunity. Um, let's talk a little bit about what these decisions are. So we're really alluding to the fact that it's pretty binary. Like you're either accepted or you're not. There's also kind of, a well, depending on your perspective, glass half full, glass half empty, there's another decision that could come through. Um, and that's the wait list. What do we do? We've been waiting four months to hear back from a school. We put all our energy into this and they're asking you to wait a little bit longer. Any initial recommendations for students when they get that waitlist decision from a college? Remember that you are in the driver's seat. So a waitlist is the college's opportunity to say, we really like you. We think you can do well here. We don't have space for you right now, but if our numbers don't end up shaking out how we think they might, we may offer you a spot here, right? And that is very hard for many students to, to deal with, you know, being taking them even longer to wait and, and be in the mental headspace of one school while waiting to hear from another. So yeah. remember that you are in the driver's seat as the student. You can choose not to be on the waiting list. And I know many students who say, you know what, I'm heartbroken and I would love to go to this school, but I have to move on. Like I, I want to get excited about this school that gave me a scholarship. I want to get excited about meeting my potential roommate and, and joining clubs and organizations. And I'm just, I know myself and I'm not going to be able to do that if I'm waiting until July to hear back about a spot at this other school. Yeah. For other students, they say, I'm equally happy wherever I go. Like I'm going to stay on the waiting list. If it works out, great. If it doesn't, cool. Like, but let's just see what happens. And that really comes down to you as the student and how this is, is going to emotionally affect you, I think, um, as you think about the next few months of your life. Yeah. Keep, keeping your options open is great for some people. I, I had a student uh, a couple years ago who was deferred in early decision only to be put on the wait list in regular decision. And his reaction to that was like, I'm not interested in this school anymore. Like I, I'm just not going to keep waiting. And he actually got an offer in the first couple of weeks of May off the wait list. And he was just like, Nope, now I've already, I've already committed to this other school. I don't like the fact that they made me wait that long. So I I've got a place that I know I'm going to love. Um, so <clears throat> I love that he took control of that. Right. And was able to kind of say, yeah, you wanted me in the end, but I didn't want you. Okay. So I chose this other school. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, some of the strategy, cause we're going to unpack this wait list conversation. I am sure in future segments where we get into a little bit more of the detail, what do the numbers look like? How do the percentages shake out? So you know, come back and, and check in on us um, towards mid to late April. I think we'll probably touch a little bit more on the wait list. I want to talk a little bit about just getting organized and getting situated as a family, as especially the yes decisions come in. Because I think there can be an instinct to say, and you usually hear back from schools that are less selective earlier in the process. And I remember me being like, when I got into read, which is where I ultimately ended up going, I was like, all right, first of many, like basically toss it over my shoulder and like waiting for the next schools to notify me. 
Turned out that that letter from Reed was really important because it's one of the few schools that accepted me. So I had to go back and get it, um, <laughs> like get more excited by it. But are, are there steps students can take, especially digitally, to make sure that they are accounting for what these offers are? What is the financial aid award? Like any, any suggestions you would make in terms of staying organized on that front? Yeah, absolutely. So just like we talk about being organized in the research phase of identifying the college list and deciding where a student wants to apply, the same goes here when it comes to the decision of where to enroll. So um, I love spreadsheets. I like consistency of data. I do. I'm a bit type A. Um, And so I like being able to kind of look at a list of schools and kind of compare and contrast the same information. And so think about those drivers and deal breakers that, um, have become more important to you, to your family, um, and compare and contrast, you know, location, compare and contrast financial aid offers or scholarship offers. And if there's any wiggle for negotiation there, um, compare and contrast distance from home and, you know, how you feel today, given the state of the world, than how you felt when you applied. Because, I mean, think of all those students who applied to college in the fall of 2019. And then by April, when they're deciding where to go to college, we're in quarantine for, you know, a pandemic. So things change, right? So assess how you're feeling about what your drivers and deal breakers are um, and kind of like go down the list, I'd say. And, And you've got until May 1st to make your decision, right? And so there might be some extra incentives to register early or to get your enrollment deposit in for early housing. Uh, Sometimes that is something that you want to take advantage of, but I think every family should not feel rushed. When you've got an offer from a school, you've got the offer from the school. There might be things that sweeten the deal a little bit based on, you know, registering or enrolling earlier, but take your time and try and try and assess the best option for you. I I also think, Christine, that it could be a good idea when you get that admission offer, you know, usually it's not lots of schools just like letting you know at the exact same time in the same hour. So you've got a little bit of space to let that decision breathe. Go and and research the school. Take, Take 30 minutes to reconsider, why did I apply here? What was it that I liked about it before? What are the things that I might like about it now as a prospective student now that I have this offer in hand. I think there's a lot of tendency to say, well, I got this school. All right, I'm going to move on to the next thing. But you really want to sit down and say, what did I like about this? What what would my life as a student be like here? And and then you can weigh that against all of the other different kind of options uh, on the table. Um, I want to ask you, I have a feeling about this, but let's say you get into five schools. Does it matter whether they were considered safety schools for you when you applied or reach schools for you when you applied. When you're making your final decision, would you say, well, I should go here because it's a reach or I shouldn't go there because it was a safety. Like how does that kind of planning aspect of your shaping your college list actually affect where you choose to enroll at the end of the day? I I don't think it necessarily should. You know, I think the structure of the list is to guarantee that you have the luxury of choice, right? If you yeah. choose to apply regular decision or early action and not the non-binary early decision pathway. And so congrats, you have the luxury of choice. From this point forward, you should be looking at all of the things that are unique about the academic and social experience at that university to identify where feels most like home to you. Where are your people? Where are you more excited about? 
this is the, the switch is flipped at this point. Colleges want you. They, they're trying to entice you. They have admitted student days. They're going to send you a branded cookie. You might get an umbrella out of it. So this is, they're putting out all the bells and whistles. Take advantage of that. Speak to as many students as possible because now you're in, like you made it over the hurdle. They want you there where right. it feels right to you because yeah. there is a fit for everyone. Some students like being a really competitive institution where there's a lot of intense academic competition because that drives them. For other students, they really like being the big fish in the small pond. They like feeling as though they have a little bit of something extra um, at their university. And there's nothing wrong with that because the most important thing about college is that you are going to be successful there academically and as a community member because that's what will impact how courageous you are to go out for that internship and to build your resume of experiences and to take risk and and pursue different career paths. I mean, that's the goal of college, right? So um, I I say at this point, I wouldn't even worry about, you know, where the school falls on your list. Ideally, you only applied to schools that you would have been happy to enroll at. Now the question becomes, which, which feels right for who I am today. That's right. I think that's great advice. Uh, Folks, keep that in mind as these decisions come uh, pouring in over the next month or so. And we'll have many more segments to talk about how you can make those uh, best decisions for you and your family. Christine, thanks for coming on the show. And I know you got a call that you got to get to. So I want to let you get on out of here. Um, Folks, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about women's colleges. Don't go away. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit getintocollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Now, March is the time for decisions, as we talked about in our last segment. It is also the time of International Women's Day, and I think the whole month is actually Women's History Appreciation. Um, And so, 
we thought we'd bring a couple of women on the show uh, <laughs> just to start. Uh, we've got Mary Sue Yun. We've got Tova Tolman here. Hey, y'all. How hello. you doing? Hello. Hello. I can't help but wave when so, I see you. <laughs> there's a video component, so that makes a lot of sense. Um, and what we wanted to talk about was the two women that are on the show with us today uh, share many things in common. One of the things that they share in common is that they used to work in admission at a women's college, uh, Barnard College, uh, which many people are familiar with. It is in New York City. Uh, it is across the street from some other university that nobody really knows about. And um, we wanted to talk a little bit about women's colleges. Now, in the show that we had last week, we read The Price You Pay for College, which is a terrific book. We unpacked a lot of it. There was a great chapter, chapter 13, right in the middle, titled The Special Power of Women's Colleges. And I love that Lieber gave some, some uh, opportunity to, to let some shine come onto those women's colleges and really think about how they add some value to student experiences. And we just wanted to have a chat today about women's colleges and the kinds of opportunities that are available for, for women there. Um, I'll start with you, Mary Sue. What do you think is, aside from the obvious, a key difference about an experience at a women's college versus a co-educational institution? Yeah, I, I think it's a great question. And um, one that as I work with students, I, they consistently ask me. Um, I, I was not uh, wise enough when I was 17 to go to women's college. Unfortunately, I, I went to a co-ed school, but I worked in the Barnard admissions office for eight years. And um, over that time, I really came to love and appreciate everything that that Barnard and women's colleges in general stood for. Um, some of the major things that that I saw as being really benefits, um, I think it's a place where women can feel supported and nurtured to take on leadership roles to achieve their best selves to uh, really like get ready to take on the world. And um, you know, some specific examples of that. Uh, there's there's definitely been studies that show that women particularly, um, I mean, I think women's colleges are great sort of across the board, but women in STEM tend to do particularly well when they go to women's colleges. And there's a higher percentage of women who persist in uh, going through to a STEM degree um, when they're in a women's college environment as opposed to a co-ed environment. There's a, there's a higher percentage there. So, um, you know, I saw that firsthand and and saw that it was a place where you know, just uh, students were just supported in a way um, that I didn't see it, it necessarily in other schools. So in, in this book, uh, he recounts a conversation with the president of Smith College, uh, which is, of course, a women's college. And uh, he asked her, why is a women's college worth all the extra money? Right. Which is like, you know, whatever question. And she said, <laughs> imagine a place where every single position of note is held by women, mm -hmm. right? So you as a woman, as a young woman coming into that college environment, you see faculty members, presidents, administrators, women uh, who are in those positions of leadership. Mm -hmm. I think that that's a really great opportunity to visualize yourself in that space. Tova, women's colleges, in addition to you know, having this fundamental aspect of their population, they also have a lot of other characteristics in common. You don't find a lot of big R1 universities that are women's college. There aren't any, in fact. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the characteristics of a women's college in terms of the more traditional college aspects, size and 
you know, student faculty interaction and stuff like that? Hmm, I could try. Uh, <laughs> you could do it. I don't know. I don't know that I could speak to all of them so well. Um, I think you are right. For that key piece they're going to have in common is the, the what you just touched on, the idea of representation and yeah. how powerful that is to look around and see that representation, not just in the administration, the faculty and the staff, but to your peers to look to see who's the student body president. Who is the president of this club, of that club? Who's writing, who's the, of, of this journal, of, of that organization? Other commonalities I think you can't help but see is some element of strength, internal strength that is celebrated. I, I've been many, many a panel at the Seven Sisters or in other environments where the common theme you see amongst the conversation of who is selected, who chooses, who opts in. Uh, is this idea of some element of women's empowerment, of not yeah. needing someone to explain it for you, of wanting that environment of supportive and collaboration over competitiveness. And I think that's something also that I see celebrated a lot of the time. How can we build each other up instead yeah. of competing against one another? A lot of girls that I talk to who are looking at the college experience, I think one of the things they'll say is, I don't want to go to a school where I don't get to interact with men. Just period, right? Okay. But that feels like a little bit of a myth. It's right, Mary Sue, like you're not for four years only interacting with women. And then you come out and you're like, I forgot what these other, what these other things are, right? <laughs> yeah. Can you talk a little bit about just the presence of men in some respects uh, on women's colleges and, yeah. and especially with some of the consortiums out there too. Right. I mean, first of all, for Barnard in particular, it's in New York city. It's, you're not going to go yeah. an hour without seeing a guy. Um, but <laughs> I, I think is so, I mean, that's unique to Barnard, but I would say that many women's colleges are in some sort of consortium um, with a co-ed institution, um, you know, Bryn Mawr with uh, Haverford, um, and, you know, the Mount Holyoke and Smith with the, the five college consortium in the Amherst, Massachusetts area. So, you know, I think that there are certainly consortiums if, if you wanted to have more co-ed interaction. But again, I, I didn't find at all that it was an issue um, where students didn't interact with males. Um, but I would also say that uh, one of the things I learned recruiting for Barnard for so long was that uh, it really depended on when you talk to the student in the recruitment process. And mm. there's actually, um, so as part of my role, when I moved up to a more senior role at Barnard, um, I did get to be a representative for some of these women's college consortium meetings that we had. Yeah. Um, and so got to talk to other admissions leaders at other women's colleges about kind of our shared experience. And there was a, um, a study that they did that showed that um, young women who went to women's colleges often added those colleges into their list a little later on in the process. Hmm. So if you talk to a ninth or a 10th grader who's still very much in the um, maturing process, identity process, trying to figure out kind of who they are, ninth or 10th grader might say, eh, no, I don't want a women's college, but they might come back in 11th or 12th grade and say, you know, I've reflected on it and given my goals and the strength and the uh, many benefits of a women's college. Yeah, I'm ready to look at it now and, and seeing really more of that. I think in the Barnard admissions office, we had a question for a long time um, on our 
a supplement on our writing supplement, which was something to the effect of, you know, um, why do you want a women's college experience or what's a woman in woman in history that you would want to interview? So it was kind of a question that was a, a test of, um, you know, why do you want a women's college? And the tone of that answer really told us a lot. Um, if it was sort of, I guess it's okay, or I guess I'll deal with it. That's not the answer that you want to give. Um, you know, you as we really sought out it. students who wanted this experience and were excited about the resources and the benefits of being in an all women's environment. And so, yeah, go for it, Tova. I see you have something to add. Tova's laughing. Yeah. I am because I have a confession to make and it's, it's not a proud one. Uh, it's not, it's not a point of pride. Uh, so Ian didn't mention it while Mary Sue and I worked together at Barnard. I also went to Barnard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am embarrassed to admit I chose Barnard college in spite of it being a women's college. Yeah. And yeah. I'm laughing here because Mary Sue's talking about this growth of maturity and the intelligence that it takes to get you to that point. I didn't get to that point until after long after I had already arrived. And I have to say it was common. And you can ask your clarifying question in a a moment. But before (laughs) you interrupt me, man, let me tell you that it was very common for many students to have gotten there, maybe almost accidentally, because of how closely Barnard is in partnership with Columbia. Many of your classes are actually co-ed. There are many males in the residence halls and your social experience in the athletics. So it's a little bit of an enigma in that way. But my point is that It came to be the most valuable part of my experience, but I will admit I did not see that worth early on when I was 17. I did not have that maturity to appreciate that. And I don't think that's uncommon for students who are looking and exploring and choosing some of these schools for many of their other attributes and not necessarily valuing that as being one of the greatest pieces of it. How did they end up on your list? If you you didn't see that value initially, why did you, why did you apply? Who told you to apply? Or was it just like, I, I guess I'll add this one, right? What, oh, what it was makes that like? my mother so happy, but <laughs> my mother knew. Yeah, <laughs> Mothers always know. Um, so it, it depends. Usually there's someone in the student's life who says, you know, there's that student who says, I'm only looking at big schools. And someone yeah. says, please just check out one small school. I'm only looking at rural schools. Please go check out one urban school. Yeah. I was checking out a school across the street. Um, adamant that I would not consider Barnard College. I don't want to go to a women's college. I don't want to go to this school. And I went across the street and realized that was not the school for me. And my mother practically dragged me against my will and better judgment. And of course, she was right because mothers always know. Uh, and I think that's what you just have to, anytime a student's looking at lists and not sure what to consider, what's something that you're so sure of that you can maybe go a little outside the box and check and explore and see, might I consider that? Have I actually visited one? Have I actually done any research to cross it off my list in any educated yeah, fashion? We ask that a lot, don't we? But why, why don't you like this? Why? Come on. Now, when we talk about colleges, we always say, you know, there's there's a right fit for everyone. It depends on whether you're going to like it. Not all students, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I don't know if this is a controversial view. I think every young woman could benefit from certain aspects of women's college experience, but there are women who are not best fits for a women's college experience mm-hmm. as well. Um, I wonder if the two of you could collaborate on who would absolutely be a perfect fit for a women's college. And then who is somebody that maybe it's not quite right for them, 
but they should still give it a look. What do we think? Hmm. Uh, I'll try the the who's maybe not a right fit um, okay. aspect. Um, so uh, I have two teenage daughters, and um, one of them is a freshman in college, um, and she wanted to go into engineering. And there are actually two women's colleges in the U.S. that have engineering programs that are um, ABET, which is the Professional Engineering Certification Accredited, um, mm-hmm. Smith College and Sweetbriar College, which is in Virginia. Um, so there are a couple of women's college options. I did try to get her to look at Smith. Because um, mothers always know. Yes, yeah. mothers always know. And after eight years of Barnard and really being friends with a lot of wonderful Barnard alum, I was like, yeah, you know, come on, women's colleges are great. I also have alums of some of the other women's colleges that are good friends. Um, but when it came down to it, she looked into the particular program that she wanted and it was not as well, the, the department wasn't a, as good of a match for her. It wasn't about sort of the women's college aspect. It's just, you know, the department that she wanted really wasn't, um, present in, in the two women's colleges that had engineering programs. So that was, but I think for other students who are into engineering, it could be, you know, a great fit for one of those programs. Um, so, you know, in her case, that wasn't. Uh, a fit. I still encouraged her to, she's very involved, not surprising since she's my kid, um, in sort of women in STEM initiatives in in her current college. And so I'm still sort of saying, you know, think about that aspect of your life experience too. Um, So I think, you know, if if the program isn't a great fit for them, it's still not a great fit, even though it is a women's college. All right, Tova, take us home. (laughs) Oh gosh. Who would be great for a women's college? A doer uh, who is going to be looking to be motivated and inspired by their peers, mm-hmm. uh, not intimidated, although they will be because I was, goodness mm-hmm. gracious, I still am, by my all of my incredible uh, friends who, who I graduated with. They are doing incredible, incredible things. And I'd say when we were in admissions looking at these candidates, we'd look for seeds. What, who who already has that seed of some element of strength of doing of moving of shaking that just needs a little bit of watering in the right kind of environment, mm-hmm. and uh, that kind of student is always going to flourish when surrounded by that kind of strength and support. That's great. That's perfect. Yeah. Uh, I think that does it for this segment, folks. Um, well done. Both of you appreciate having you on today. <laughs> you don't have to wipe your brow, Tova. That's terrific. Thank you both for being here. I appreciate it. Thanks You're for having welcome. us, Ian. Awesome. Uh, when we come back, we're going to do a little bit of listener Q&A. So don't go away. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. 
Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back uh, to the show. We are going to jump right into the listener mailbag. Do we call it the mail? I wish we had theme music for this, Shannon. Um, oh, no, Shannon Vasconcellos is here. Hey, Shannon. Hi. Hi. <laughs> um, our, our usual partner in crime for the listener Q&A, she takes the finance, I take the admissions, and we answer as many questions as we can. We do need theme music for our Q&A. So if you want to send that into us, um, getting into voiceamerica at gmail.com, we'll take compositions, big brass I bands, strings, yes. whatever. And I want to give a plug to our YouTube channel. You need to check out the video of this segment if you're just listening, you know, on your phone. I have worn specifically a flannel shirt. I saw that. To match my friend Ian because I knew he would be wearing one today, as he often does. West Coast, best coast representing today. I tried to dress as my best Portlandian so I could blend with you, Ian. It's, It's pretty embarrassing that you knew. Um, I'm so reliable in this regard. Okay. I was literally wearing another shirt and changed so I could match you. And I was right. Well, okay. Now that I'm embarrassed, <laughs> on, on that let's note, turn to my area of expertise, please. For fashion tips and college admissions advice, <laughs> tune in to getting in a college coach conversation. Okay. So our first actual college admission questions come in from Amy and Amy asks, our son is starting to receive early action decisions. One college he has gotten into is one that we were not able to visit in person as it's a four-hour drive. Now that he has gotten an acceptance, we are anxious to visit. When is the best time to go? We want to visit before the accepted students stay. What do you recommend, Ian? Yeah, I, I think... Um usually early action decisions come through in December or early January. And that tends to be the time that schools are not in session. Right. And so it's also probably the worst time of year to see the campus, right? There are no leaves on the trees. The weather is awful. It's cold. People are miserable. Like it's just not the ideal way to see that university. And especially because if the students aren't there on campus, that means that when you're a student, you'll not be there. So you're going to see the campus at a time when you wouldn't ever live on You would campus. never experience this campus, yeah. Exactly. And so I, I think it can be a really good idea 
Um, and this is for future early action decision recipients um, to go, I would say in the second or the third week of a semester. A lot of people will say like, oh, the first week is great, but I think a lot of students are sort of revving up. They're getting used to their classes. They're developing a comfort level. They're getting back into the swing of things. That second or third week can be really representative of what the overall experience is going to look like. It'll also show you a worse version of the weather than is typical, um, but that's something that you'll just want to acknowledge and be aware of uh, as you're considering that, that possibility. Um, I do think going for the admitted student days can be pretty cool for an early action student, and it's a really great way to reconnect with that class because if you got in early, it's been months until the regular decision students right. come in, and it's a whole new set of potential friends and roommates and classmates. And so going for that um, experience, I think can be a, a really big help. Um, although it's pretty glossy, right? Like the admitted student days is the <laughs> best foot forward from the yeah. school. And when we were talking about representative experiences, admitted student days are not that. Um, they are the roll out the red carpet version of, of the school. Um, so keep that in mind as you're, as you're going to visit. Um, the other thing is, uh, and I, this is not part of the question, but given we're in March, I would just say this. Um, try and narrow down the number of schools that you're going to see in the spring to a reasonable number of you know, two, three, something like that. I think going right. to see four or five, six schools, try and establish your top two or three before you start buying plane tip tickets and arranging those college visits. Um, cause you got to narrow down the list at some point. Right. They start to blend. If you see too many <sighs> in a small window of time, they sure do. And yeah. it's like, wait, where did it, how did it? Yeah. It's yeah. you lose track in a hurry. Yeah. Um, all right. This question comes from Debbie on Facebook at the end of January. So pretty recent. Um, in the segment of college tax breaks, the speaker, who was it? Lori, uh, I think. Lori. Okay. She yep. mentioned special rules like income level. And if you're divorced and paying college tuition for your child, but the speaker didn't go into what being divorced and paying tuition, but not being able to claim the child as a dependent means as far as the tax break. Can you speak to that or direct me to a resource? I'm a divorced parent that pays tuition, but my ex claims my son on their taxes. Yeah. So unfortunately, I think I have some bad news for Debbie. Um, mm. The rules of the college tax breaks, and I think we're specifically here talking about the American Opportunity Credit, which is the most sort of common, most valuable tax break for, for most folks in terms of the college tax break. Lifetime learning tax credit is similar. Um, the requirements of that tax break say you have to claim the child as a dependent in order to claim the tax break. Mm. It does not matter who is actually paying the college bill. The IRS behaves as if the student, it's the student's tuition bill, the student is paying the bill. Therefore, whoever claims that student gets to take the tax break. Yeah. So even though Debbie may be paying the entire tuition bill, if her ex is claiming the student, her ex, who may have paid nothing towards the tuition bill, gets to take the entire tax break, um, assuming he or she otherwise qualifies their income limitations. Yeah, it's a real bummer for folks in this situation, and unfortunately, the rules in this case simply are what they are and there's no way to get around them. Yeah. Uh, I, so I would recommend folks just to be aware of this early on as you're negotiating 
divorce settlements and custody settlements and who gets to claim the student be aware of this. And if the two parents have a good relationship, as, as you would hope that they would through this process, I mean, you can make arrangements so it's the most beneficial to the most people. There are income limitations on the American Opportunity Tax Credit tax break. Um, if you are, you have to be, if you're married filing jointly, making less than $180,000 a year. If mm -hmm. you are single, it has to be less than $90,000 a year. So say, for example, in this divorcing couple, they know one of them makes less than those income limitations and the other one makes more. You can make the arrangement that the one who makes less, who will actually qualify for the tax break, could claim the student during the college years, perhaps. Right. And then you can, you know, make up for that in other ways or agree to split the money or do, you know, a thousand other arrangements you can do when you're when you're organizing um, divorce settlements. But unfortunately, it is a rule. Whoever claims the student gets to take that tax break, regardless of if they're actually paying the tuition bill. Gosh, that's messy. It is. All right. No, on that no happy further comments. Yeah. <laughs> we will, we will move on. Got something better than that? <laughs> to Melissa. Okay. Um, she sent in a question on an older podcast. I heard, oh, I'm sorry. Actually, by the way, just back to Debbie's question, um, because she did ask for some resources. If you check out our blog at blog.getintocollege.com and just search for tax breaks on that blog, we have a number of different articles going into this and a whole bunch of other tax issues. So you might want to check those out. Wait, now you. we will move on to Melissa's yeah. question. On an older podcast, I heard the host give a quick warning on being careful that your high school student not have too many college credits as they may be considered a transfer student when applying to colleges. Yikes, I didn't know this was an issue. Um, and I believe her student is taking some community college classes while in high school. On the university's admissions webpage, they say Students apply as a transfer student if they have earned eight or more college credits following high school, following high school graduation. Does this mean we can trust um, that all students who apply during their senior year of high school are considered first time first year students, even if they are submitting a college transcript with their application showing some college credits? Do you recommend we ask the admissions office about this uh, before he takes any further courses that give college credit? Thank you so much for your podcast. I feel more comfortable navigating the college process uh, with our four children. Heck yeah. That is a <laughs> listener that we've got for years and years and yes. years. Thanks for the email, <laughs> Melissa. Um, there's a lot There's a lot of complexity in this question, um, but, but also some simplicity as well. Um, the simple answer is, if you are taking a class that counts as both a high school class and a college class. In other words, it shows up on your high school transcript. Then it doesn't put you into a tough position where you're considered a transfer. And there are lots of students that take dual enrollment classes, community college classes, and those classes land on their high school transcript. They get high school credit for it. And from a college admission office's perspective, that is a high school class, right? Ah. Um, now, there are some arrangements that allow colleges to recognize dual credit as a way of saying yeah, that counts as a high school credit, but we also recognize that that's a challenging class to take. It's at the college level. And so we want to give you recognition for that when you enroll here and we'll give you credits. And that's very similar to getting a score of a four or a five on an AP exam or a five, six or seven on an IB exam. It just reflects the fact that a student has a certain level of content knowledge 
that means they don't have to take particular kinds of courses when they get to college because they've already covered that over the course of their high school career. So there are very rare, I don't even know if I've seen a circumstance where a student during their high school years takes a college class and then is considered a transfer student. You can always check with, with universities just to double check and be sure that there isn't something that's a miss with, with respect okay. to your interpretation. Now, one key element of this that I'll put an asterisk on, which I don't think applies to Melissa and her circumstances, but is something for students to be aware of. Let's say you graduate and you want to take some college credits, college classes in order to get ready for your university. That could put you into some tough positions with respect to how you come in as an incoming freshman. And I think the circumstances where this is most common is where a student takes a gap year. So they graduate from high school, they defer their enrollment in the university they've been admitted to for a year, or they decide they're going to apply at the end of that fall. And while they're waiting, they say, ah, you know what? I think I'll take some college classes. If you take a certain number of college classes, some, it could be even one that might make you a transfer applicant, which is an entirely different pool, entirely different set of circumstances, and generally something to be avoided. Uh, I think almost universally, you want to apply as a first-year freshman if you have the opportunity to do so. Uh, As hard as it is to get into some schools as freshmen, it can be even harder uh, as a transfer student. Absolutely, and can have financial implications as well. The best financial aid at most colleges is reserved for, for incoming freshman students, transfers, sometimes get the short end of the stick there. One potential solution, by the way, is you could audit college classes. Mm. You can also take classes not for credit. Like if you want to just have the experience of the coursework, but you don't want to actually get that credit, that's a way to potentially have that that experience. Um, And some schools will have auditing fees that are really cheap, um, which which can be a cool way to, to get that college experience. Absolutely. Um, next question comes in. Um, our 10th grader told us in ninth grade that he is gay. We support and love him, but this adds a variable to the college search process. He has not yet shared his news with anyone else. While we respect that decision, it limits our ability to help him get guidance on determining which colleges are supportive of gay students. So our question is simply this. How do you determine how supportive a college community is of Gay students, most schools seem to advertise LGBT support, but how do you determine which are really welcoming and supportive, both student body and administration, especially when our son is not ready to discuss this outside of his family? And I know we're short on time. I wish we had more time for this question. Yeah, I, first of all, just uh, congratulations to your son on on coming out to his family and and taking that first step. I think that's fantastic and uh, hope that he soon feels ready to come out for everyone, um, but we don't want to rush that, right? Um, There is a great resource called the Campus Pride Index, which is at campusprideindex.org. And it essentially has a LGBTQ-friendly campus search tool. So you can actually look through Campus Pride to get a sense for how supportive different campuses are for students who have uh, who are gay, who are transgender, and there's a lot of great information there. Um, I also think that you can think a little bit about, and this is a shortcut, but geographic location, 
um, you know, just different kinds of cities and their political leanings might have an influence on the friendliness of college campuses. Um, I think in general, Shannon, young people these days are so much better, so much more accepting of these kinds of differences than the generations that came before. It's incredible. My daughter went to a, um, a women's only ultimate clinic, beginner's clinic this weekend. And she came out of it and was talking about an experience with another person there. And she used the they pronoun. She said, they go by they. So she was using they in conversation. And I know like as an adult, I sometimes still am trying to figure out how do I use the they pronoun? So younger students, I think are great at this. College students are really supportive in most contexts, but then there are going to be those that are especially supportive in this space. And campus pride is a great way to check that out. So I, I'm, I'm, I really love that this question even came through and it's, it's a great question to ask and an important one. And, and it's a nice indication of trust from our listeners too, which, which I love to see Shannon. Absolutely. And yeah, I, I hope that your son finds a new freedom and confidence. And is I see that in a lot of students who are unable to come out at home, but do at college. And I hope yeah. your son finds that. Absolutely. Um, I think we have one more question that would be a great lead into the end, to the closing. Absolutely. Uh, Eric asks, what do you suggest we do over our junior summer in order to stand out? That's a great question. On next week's edition of Getting In a College Coach Conversation, uh, we are going to have a segment on summer programs at first choice colleges. So what is the value of going to a summer program at a school that you might ultimately like to attend as a student? We'll also touch a little bit more on some other summer programs and what the best case scenario is for your particular summer. We'll also talk about whether to attend admitted student receptions and what students should be looking out for. So that goes back to the first question that we answered here in the Q&A. And then there's some weird finance thing, Shannon, on the current window of opportunity for PSLF. And I never know what this stuff means. So lots of um, acronyms in the financial aid world. Tune in. Fantastic. So Shannon, thanks for being here. Um, folks, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week in another great edition of Getting In. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.